I think there's stress at any level of development. I think you go through a lot of the same angst, whether the project is three units or 23 units. So we've just kind of looked at that and said, we're going to go through the same stress, the same aggravation, or at least similar levels of stress and aggravation and permitting and whatever else to get three, four, five, six units done. Why don't we turn our attention to 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 units? Because we're going to go through a lot of the same stuff. Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. You're here with our hosts, Mark Svatsky from Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And joining us today is our guest. Adam Burns from Burns Realty and Investments. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, so Beautiful dreary day. So much for the drive times decreasing here. Yeah, I feel like traffic is back. Parking is harder to find. And those are uh, all positive omens, in my opinion. Yeah, was it what about a year ago now? We're what? We're in May, maybe a little less than a year ago. We were talking about, we were comparing, Mark, I think you were comparing Boston to France and our Paris about resiliency. And yeah, we should come full circle and talk about like what has actually happened and, and did things fall apart and are we coming back and all that good stuff. Yeah, I was just telling Adam, I, I have two vacancies coming up in Southie for uh, three bedrooms. And I was a little nervous about it, but Adam was kind of making me feel better. So I'll, I'll turn this over to you, Adam. Rentals in the city, anything to be nervous about? Yeah, as you guys kind of touched on, I think traffic coming back is our first indication that things are returning to normal. But we're seeing really amazing uh, turnout on all of our rental properties that we're putting out there. And I'd say the rental market is just as strong as it has been in years past. So do not despair, Mark. You will be able to move those three-bed rentals, no problem. I know we all saw it, but there was that mass exodus for a very long time out to the suburbs, You know, people moving back with family, You know, rents declining a little bit, but I'm here to say we're back. Things are moving very nicely. We're seeing concessions drop off for vacant units and uh, pricing is relatively stable where it was in years past. So very happy to see that. And you know, I think that with the return of traffic, we might see more and more people that were participating in that exodus to the suburbs starting to to think twice about that. Sorry, Ray. I don't know if that... Uh, <laughs> oh, no, that's great. I, I was going to just follow you up. you feel good. Has the tenant base changed at all? Have there been any changes in one year? You know, Are I've, the baby boomers still coming to the city? Yeah. I think that so. was like a big thing. Is that... So that I was... I'd heard anecdotally that like all of those baby boomers who's like... 35-year-old kids uh, move back in with them for a year with their grandkid. All of a sudden, we're like, damn, thank God I have a, a fourth and fifth bedroom and a basement. And uh, But what, what's the current status of the world? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a lot of multi-generational living going on during COVID. To your point, at least we haven't seen a lot of those baby boomers you know, downsizing, mm-hmm. selling a large home in, in Needham, Newton, Wellesley, wherever, and buying condos in Seaport, Southie. We haven't seen a ton of that return. It's still a lot of uh, first-time buyers, a lot of the pent-up demand from the market where people kind of sat on the sidelines and said, you know what, I'm, I'm comfortable where I am or you know, I'm going to go stay with family. That pent-up demand that just wasn't buying houses during COVID is definitely returning to the market as well. So we're seeing a, a very strong buyer pool. But we also do a, a, a lot of work uh, with units that do attract first-time buyers to begin with. But uh, we had not seen 
return of those uh, baby boomers buying larger condos. I don't know if you guys have in any of your projects. You know, I know that you've done some larger townhouse developments, and those would traditionally attract that type of buyer, right? Yeah, no. I mean, we've we saw a couple of our projects in the last few years prior to COVID. Uh, at least one of the units had been an older couple that retired, and their kids have moved moved away. But no, the latest projects that we've sold have been younger families with young kids and you know and or other younger couples we haven't seen that demographic yet or come back yet and i think that's what's kind of increased the the demand in the sub- suburbs or the decrease in inventory in the suburbs because you kind of had that shift going on pre covid but now no one is selling anymore in the suburbs which is causing a huge shortage in housing so but it will be interesting to see what what happens with with the suburbs and and if that push continues over the next couple of years. Yeah, we've heard that argument quite a bit from sellers. They're just saying, where am I going to go? I can't sell my house. There's a line down the block when the last house is on the market, 20, 30, 40, 50 people deep. How am I supposed to move anywhere else? I, I have to stay here. And that's affecting the supply. So, you know, we have this boom in demand and not enough supply. Housing sales and the number of homes being sold are, are still down from years past. So yeah, I think it's going to take some time to, to reach a, a sense of normalcy again there. You know, Adam, as a, as a friend of ours, a longtime friend of the pod, he is a broker. Obviously, Burns Realty and Investment uh, has storefront in Boston, does a ton of uh, rentals and sales. Meanwhile, very, very successful real estate developer and now construction management firm uh, as well. Right, Adam? Yeah, thank you for that. I guess I should yeah. do a little more uh, self-plugging here. Yeah, yeah, we do commercial and residential brokerage work, but that's only a piece of our business. Uh, development was the primary driver uh, for getting into all things real estate to begin with. Uh, I started a little over a decade ago, got into development, buying my first condos, renting them out. I was always primarily rental and you know, started obviously getting into condos because... There was good return there as a way to attract investors. And then over time, as you did mention, we do own Synergy Construction Group as well, which is the construction arm of our business. For a long time, used general contractor labor and just got tired of you know, not having the oversight into the overall flow of money, for lack of a better term. Just having the ability to know that our subcontracts are being paid, being taken care of, lien waivers are being signed and... you know owning the hierarchy of the construction process from start to finish um, was kind of our main driver and our main goal for for getting into the construction side of the business. So you know, now we're vertically integrated. Um, you know, we own the life cycle of a project from inception or uh, project acquisition right through disposition of the asset at the end of the, the cycle, whether that's rental or condo. So yeah, I, I don't know no, what's next awesome. for us, but... I think if, if you could open a site and utility uh, contracting uh, division next, I, I personally would appreciate that. I think that would be the, the ultimate vertical integration. And then maybe maybe an architecture branch. But I like Ted Ty's take on that, which was that like, it's because they're incredibly vertically integrated, right? National development, but mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't do uh, architecture because there's so many great designers around the city. And it's kind of fun to, you know, when you do this type of project, use that firm or grab this talent when you're developing in this part of the city. So I get that. Yeah, that, that's actually a really great point. 
there's obviously reasons why, but mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the thinking is why limit yourself to one creative genius, you know, mm-hmm. when you could kind of pick and choose, you know, the right person for the right site or the right mindset for a project. You know, thankfully, I'm sure all of you do, you know, we have a lot of really great relationships in the architectural world. We actually share some of our office space here with a few architects that work very strongly in the Boston market. So I don't see that as uh, necessarily an avenue for us, but maybe someday down the line, you know, we incorporate that as well. As a corollary, he, they also do not do actually uh, sales. And um, I don't think this was said explicitly, but I, I imagine uh, the reason, one of the reasons might be fear that new opportunities may not flow your direction if you're obviously going to keep those units and sell them yourself, whereas that's a big part of this, uh, the, the wheel that turns. So has that been your experience? Is that, has that been something to overcome? Yeah, no, it, it definitely is. So we do find that we're generating more of our own opportunities than the opportunities that are brought to us, unfortunately. And I think a lot of it is the product of, you know, we're feeding our own machine, so to speak. So our deal flow on the development side does flow back into the brokerage. So we've done deals in the past where we do have broker tie-ins and you know we're happy to honor those agreements. Not everything has to be done so black and white. You know, we do have the ability to kind of pick and choose. So if there's a, a really great deal, you know, we're happy to work with other brokerages to sell or rent or you know whatever the end goal is for that project. But yeah, I think the stigma is there that it's harder to bring a deal to a company that like ours that also does the brokerage work. If people bring us a deal, we're paying brokerage fees um, to them for bringing us an acquisition. But a lot of the time, you're right, you know, that end product does flow back into the brokerage. So we're pretty good at leveraging you know, our own connections and our own uh, pipeline. But yeah, yeah. It, you guys have I good think there's always more. I got I to gotta give you that. You have a lot of stuff going on at all times. So you don't seem to be hurting for opportunities. Yeah, I think you guys probably know it as well as we do. It never hurts to have more opportunities. You know, more looks are always better, but uh, we just have to hustle a little harder in order to find them. Are you doing mainly condo development, rental development, a little bit of both? Yeah, great question. Our thesis in the past has been to try and keep it about 50-50. Obviously, 50% of the units we're producing rental, 50% of the units we're producing being condo. That's pretty archaic. I don't think that that's really founded in any basic principle or any reasoning behind that, other than just trying to stay diversified. And, you know, I like that. You know, people throw out these figures all the time, like you know, unit mixes or certain things. Like you know, I do this many condos and this many rentals. I, I don't have a, a secret formula for that. You know, I just found that it's it's a good balance. So we're generating some short-term cash flow for investors if we have investors on a condo project. And then you know, we're generating further uh, rental income that flows back into the, the cogs of the machine. Are you yeah. finding it harder and harder to find good rental projects? Absolutely. It is getting much harder to find something that makes sense because we primarily focus on ground-up construction. With the costs escalating recently, and I'm sure that's something we can we can touch on and complain about here all day long. But yeah, with the way the costs are increasing right now, and and just the cost of land, um, 
it's extremely difficult to find product that works as a rental property. We're finding that we have to go more and more dense. So taking advantage of you know some of the pilot programs of the city, compact living policy, you know those things are allowing us to make the numbers pencil. But I think barring those things, it's it's hard. Tell us more about the compact living policy. Something I think I'm familiar with, but uh, how have you guys taken advantage of that? And I guess what is it? Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say that I'm a foremost expert on it by any means, but it's essentially a program through the city of Boston. They have basic unit minimum sizes, and I'm I'm going to butcher this right now because I don't have the chart in front of me. But say a, a one bedroom has to be 600 square feet at a minimum. Uh, I think a two bedroom has to be 850 square feet. Anytime you drop below those unit size minimums, it falls into the compact living policy. And there's a whole bunch of other things that you have to do within the building, whether it be common area amenities, bike racks, reduced parking. And reduced parking. That one sticks. It's not popular with neighborhoods. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of things that have to be done in the program for the building in order to have those unit sizes be less than the minimum. So for filling a building full of 600 square foot one bedrooms, and then we drop that to 450 square foot one bedrooms. We're cranking out a little bit higher density and the the price per square foot might go up a little bit, but the gross price that somebody's paying for those units doesn't change all that much. So yeah. helps the ROI. On the construction side, it, it's a little more challenging, right? Like the higher density does pump your uh, price per foot, more kitchens, more furnaces, et cetera. More expensive but, uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. We have Eric uh, Robinson from Rody coming on in a week or two. And he, I think he joined the ZBA recently. And uh, what was the gentleman's name who's there forever? The, uh, the architect for the ZBA. Anthony, uh, where's Pisani. Anthony Pisani. Thank you. Yes, Ray. Um, anyway, so right. I think Eric came on and he knew of the compact living policy. And they passed him the plans and the typical like plans are adequate. He, he looked at him and he said, I think the, one of the first meetings I was at, adequate, but the unit sizes are below the minimum and would therefore trigger the compact living guidelines. And I don't see so much as a bicycle storage rack in this building. And he wasn't wrong. And since then, I think people have been paying a lot more attention to that unit size and the, and the policy's gotten a little more attention. So no, that's something I didn't even hear about, but that's, you know, uh, I appreciate the, yeah. uh, the insight on that. Yeah. Um, Tune in next week. You can, we'll, we'll ask him more. <laughs> <laughs> Good lead-in. Yeah, th- there's some crazy stuff in there too that doesn't get a whole lot of attention and for a long time wasn't enforced. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I think there's something about buying tea passes in perpetuity for <laughs> the occupants yeah. of the building or something along those lines. And uh, there's not really good ways out there to enforce those things right now. So there's a whole bunch of crazy stuff in there. Good reading if you guys uh, want some bedtime reading. Yeah. Yeah. Have we talked about this on the pod, but the notion that buildings are going up promising no resident parking stickers for like, this is in proximity to public transportation and therefore I will not provide a T-pass. That's kind Cars of- Cars weren't allowed to get a parking sticker if you are a resident of this building sort of thing. Yeah. I've spoken to some guys smarter than me. And uh, what I've heard a few times now is that it's not enforceable. That- one day a condo association will get together a well-heeled group and say like, screw this. We pay our taxes just like everyone else. And I'm entitled to that road just like you. And it won't stand up. But in the meantime, it's an interesting. Yeah. So why don't we go back to that real quick? Because weren't we talking yesterday about 
There's some 80-unit development being proposed in Dorchester, Fields Corner area. What, six parking spaces was required? That's it. And the roof deck was a quote-unquote amenity required because of the compact living space? Yeah, there was an article in the Dorchester Reporter yesterday. An 80-unit compact living building was proposed under the pilot. And it basically, the, the article says, the plan shows a rooftop deck as an amenity that developer that the developers required to provide in exchange for getting the okay to build more units than usually allowed. That's what the article said. And fewer parking spaces. Jeez, <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> so I don't know if the article's inaccurate, but it was, I thought it was pretty interesting. And that's approved or is that going it's through? It's pro- pro- proposed, proposed, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's approved. I want their zoning attorneys. <laughs> that's a good. Yeah, I mean, that's four it's, tenths it's, of a mile from the T stop from the red line. Yeah, like if they're really if the projects are really close to the public transit, I mean, is it bad? But I mean, how far how close is is close? Right, like what at what point are you not really close? Because someone could say, oh, it's a half mile. It's only a ten minute walk. That's close. Yeah, it is close. Uh, no, we uh, we talked about this with Josh. And um, I forget her name from, uh, they, they were proposing the new regulation for the entire Commonwealth. And uh, I think they said a quarter mile. Somerville kind of did a smart thing with their walk sheds for yeah. each of the, the T locations. And I think that was kind of an intelligent way to, to look at walkability to a transit node. And then basing the parking requirements on those walk sheds. What's a walk shed? Walk shed... Kind of like a, a snowshed or, I guess, watershed where, mm. you know, certain areas translate to a certain node. So they basically laid out, here are the transit nodes um, oh. and the area around it, the shed in quotes, yeah. the shed area is the area that would commute or go to that central point. And then they have like kind of two gradients to that. So there's a, a close gradient, which might be a quarter mile or something like that. And I, I'm not an expert in this, but there's a second gradient that's you know further out that requires mm. a little bit more parking. And then there's areas that just are not within whatever distance they're measuring. And those areas require full parking and you yeah. know, certain requirements. That's thoughtful. It'd be good if we could have some kind of logical laws and zoning, but I digress. <laughs> it would be fun if the compact living policy wasn't at odds with what most neighborhood groups are going to ask you for. It's tough. Yeah. yeah. And it's tough. Hey, so it seems like you guys are sort of starting to graduate from the five, seven, nine unit. You have a couple larger, at least small project review type buildings going on right now. I saw a post you're doing, uh, it looked like deep foundations in South Boston, a bunch of um, what is caissons. But anyway, tell us about that and what that's that kind of uh, step has, has been like stressful. How's it going? I think it's stressful regardless of the size <laughs> of the project. Um, I don't think the stress level, it definitely doesn't decrease. Let's put it that way. But I think there's stress at any level of development. I think you go through a lot of the same angst, whether the project is three units or 23 units. So we've just kind of looked at that and said, we're going to go through the same stress, the same aggravation, or at least similar levels of stress and aggravation and permitting and whatever else to get three, four, five, six units done. Why don't we turn our attention to 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 units? Because we're going to go through a lot of the same stuff. It's, it's been really enjoyable. 
the one that you're mentioning is a project they're working on an old colony that is actually a really cool foundation system, a secant pile wall. Are you guys familiar with that system? No. Okay. So um, yeah. it's actually our, our SEO or support uh, recommendation. SOE rather. Yeah. SEO is for internet stuff. <laughs> But it's our support of excavation and it's also our, our foundation. So what they do is they place these guide walls around the perimeter of the site. And the guide wall has these interlocking circles on it. And each of those interlocking circles is where the rig is going to drill down. And that rig comes in and drills down to the depth of whatever your suitable soils are. Over there, I think we were between 15 and 18 feet. And then after the rig comes in, drills down, in one of those circles, it gets pumped full of concrete. It does that every other, so alternating uh, circles all the way around the perimeter. And then it goes back after that concrete's cured and drills the interlocking cylinder next to the ones that it just originally drilled. And that actually gets a steel I-beam and more concrete. So you get this interlocking foundation system, Mm -hmm. which actually is quite dry. So we had a high water table over there and we actually excavated down to 20 feet and bone dry. It supports you know, our structures on both sides, the streets and sidewalks on the other sides, and ends up being our permanent foundation as well. There's a pile cap that gets poured on top of it. And then you saw the photo of was uh, digging down in the center of the donut, as I like to call it. Yeah. Uh, scooping out all the unsuitable stuff that was in the middle. And then backfilling that with good compactable fill. And you know, then right now we're working on forming up our footings in there for the elevator and everything else. It's awesome. Yeah, that's a cool system. It's actually similar to like a slurry wall, if you're familiar, where they use a clam shell. And, and it also reminds me of underpinning, right? Where you're playing hopscotch. You're kind of hitting at this checkerboard and then that checkerboard and then coming in between. It does do a good job of cutting off the water. And if you're fortunate enough to have clay at that bearing that you're going down to, which I'm sure you do, that's, that's cutting off. Clay is very impervious to water. So then you're getting the water cut off at the bottom, the sides, and you're avoiding dewatering. But uh, not an inexpensive way to do a foundation. That's the downside. No, it's, it's definitely on a cost per square foot yeah. basis. It's up there. But yeah. we looked at it as... There's, there aren't no- that many options. No, no. When you're that close, and it gives you the widest margins too, because it's a single-sided pour, so to Mm -hmm. speak. So you know you're not having to bring in your foundation walls from the property line at all. You can go right up to a property line. Dan and I were chatting earlier about kind of graduating to a big project, and I made a stupid joke. I said, sort of like it reminds me of Billy Madison when uh, Ernie's talking to Billy, and he says, "I can't wait to get to high school, Billy." And he says, "Don't ever say that. Stay right where you are. It's nice." And sometimes like I've done some of the bigger stuff and I've seen the stress and I've seen a big project go, I'm not going to say South, but maybe a little sideways and kind of makes you want yearn for the nine unit (laughs) wood stick frame thing. So you see any of that? Equity partners, mezzanine debt. um, Yeah. All that stuff can definitely add up. Real subcontractors and change orders. And obviously, we're doing a podcast. You can't see me shaking my head in agreement. Yeah. But um, there's there's definitely more of that stuff. But I think a lot of the issues that you can run into, and I think what you're speaking to is just, I guess, level of comfort. And whether that's financially or time-wise or anything else, 
you know, might yearn for some of those smaller projects because it's comfortable. You know, you've done it a bunch of times, you know, yeah. anatomy of it. It's familiar. You have enough capital to deal with whatever issue could come mm. up. So I think as long as, you know, you apply those same principles to the larger project, there shouldn't be too much brain damage. But again, all of this stuff, real estate investment in general, and, you know, everything that we do is, is high risk, regardless mm. of the size of the project there's going to be risk involved. So I don't even know if I answered your question. I think the answer is... uh, It's about comfort. And as you get bigger and you do more of these, you'll be more comfortable. I kind of think of it as control. And I guess I feel like I lose control over the process as it grows bigger. But that's probably a function of being less comfortable with the the process. And so, interesting. And I'm not saying that we're comfortable. You know, we're still working on getting there because... We've only been doing this for so long and you know we are growing and things are going well so far but never want to be too comfortable no. yeah when if you're not com- if you're not uncomfortable that means you're not growing oh I, yeah and something's probably about to smack you if you're really comfortable <laughs> yeah. so so earlier no. you mentioned you mentioned something about investors so are you funding some of your are all of your projects with investor capital uh, as well and kind of tell us a little bit about how you're financing your deals. Yeah. Happy to comment on Capital Stack. Um, So we do a whole lot of different things. (laughs) It's the short answer there. We do finance solely 100% our capital. I'd say about 50 to 60% of our projects, maybe a little bit more. The other stuff, usually where we're going to be taking short-term money. So a lot of the condo projects because they have a very finite lifespan. You know, we know that we're going to start construction at X month and we're going to be done around X plus 12 or 18 or 24. A lot of that is outside capital, investor capital. And we kind of have two flavors. I think you guys actually sat down with Finance Boston at one point, didn't you? So I'm sure they're much more adept at explaining this stuff. But we have kind of two different ways of raising financing. One of them we like to call like friends and family capital, not necessarily actually our friends or family, but just you know our own contacts, people from our network, you know, high net worth and not necessarily high net worth individuals, but um, accredited investors who have 50, 100, 150 to invest, want to diversify their portfolio and you know are interested in real estate. So we cobble together deals with a number of those people and those are you know, super awesome because we get to bring a project like this to people that might not otherwise have access to it and create a great return for them. And then the other opportunity is either family offices or high net worth individuals, you know, one person or entity or um, investment group coming in and plunking down the whole equity stack. So we've kind of started trending more in that direction just because it's a lot less work corralling, you know, multiple investors, getting signatures. Obviously, the more people you have involved, the more there is to do in terms of coordination. So having one person or entity report to has been a little bit less cumbersome. So I think to answer your question, we do a lot on our own. And then we take investment capital for anything that we have a finite horizon on. I was going to say, is there one uh, group that you prefer more than the other, or are they sort of tailored for, you know, certain purposes? Because you know, Dan and I have talked about family offices, and I think we sat down with a group that would 
give us access to a directory of family offices. And um, the appeal there is that sometimes family offices don't actually want that much. And so I'm curious if you're willing to share that kind of what they require versus a friends and family kind of bucket would require. Sure. Can I just make sure I understand the question first? So asking kind of the different like underwriting requirements for each group or... Not so much the underwriting requirements, more so the returns and the time frame. So, you know, is a family office looking for something where they might give you a lower cost of capital, but they want things in perpetuity or, you know, sort of what are the returns to each of those groups kind of look like? Ballpark. I'll add an ask an additional question to that. Are typically, do you see family offices and larger net worth individuals wanting to take down the entire deal versus your kind of friends and family are kind of just uh, either debt or smaller equity partners versus funding through a traditional lender? All right. Kind of a second <laughs> part to the question. Lots of, lots of different <laughs> questions. There. So basically, return of required return of capital, uh, returns yep. to, to investor groups demand, yep. and then where they want to sit in the capital stack. So let me let me start there. So to your point, Ray, I don't know that I can get too granular for you. You know, some of that stuff, I don't know if people like me necessarily sharing, but yeah, no, you know, from a high level, um, you know, usually from our experience and obviously you know, my experience is only so finite, but when we're working with family office capital or high net worth individuals, we're offering typically uh, a stipulated return. So, you know, we're telling them it's going to be 18% per year or 18% IRR, whatever we end up agreeing on. That is the guaranteed return and they get their capital before any capital flows to um, us as the sponsor. When we have friends and family capital, it's more in line with the sponsor. So we're typically taking all a a profit share from the deal. Or if there is a a guaranteed uh, return component, it might get paid pair pursue with the sponsor. Again, every I'd say that friends and family capital are more customizable. So it really varies by deal and what that deal can support. So we go out and we raise based on how the deal can support that equity. So that kind of is function following form in a lot of ways. But in terms of high net worth and family office capital, it's predominantly a stipulated agreed upon return ahead of time. So a lot of a lot of that money is acting kind of like mezzanine debt. Is it like a hurdle where they where once they you hit those returns, then it kind of drops off, goes more in your favor? Is that fair to say? We've done we've done hurdle deals like that where the outcome of the deal shifts um, based on meeting certain hurdles. But a lot of times, you know, we're setting them up now. And what we're trying to move towards is just, it's basically an interest rate for an investor. Like you're going to get so much on your money over a certain period of time. We're going to return it at this month. We're going to keep it outstanding for at least this long. And this is what the deal is going to support in return to you. And you might have mentioned it in terms of the mezzanine, and I think this is Dan's question. So where do they fall in the capital stack, both parties? I assume that they're almost like a secondary lender to the traditional bank if it's a friends and family. And would the family office take the whole thing, to Dan's point? Yep. So family office typically likes to take the whole thing. I found that you know there's usually minimums of at least a million in a lot of cases. Some have higher minimums, some have lower minimums. But 
they're typically sitting just behind the bank. So, you know, bank gets their money first. Whoever the investor is for the equity component comes second, and then we're last in line. With friends and family, again, that can be any mix, but they're typically sitting at the same position in the capital stack that we are. So they might be guarantors on the deal as well, which offers a higher rate of return, or they they might be non-guarantors in a different class of investor. Can we talk quickly about the underwriting? I know you had mentioned that earlier as kind of a clarifying point, mm-hmm. but what is that process? Because typically for friends and family, like with Dan and I, when we're raising money for our general investors, no family offices, you know, you send out a packet or maybe it's just a whisper type thing where you've got more interest than you've got supply. So people just sign up and, and they know us at this point. Is that different with the family office? Do you need to go in and make a formal pitch? Or is that something where it's based on relationship? Hey, we'll do one and then we'll do another and then we're more comfortable. From my experience, it's heavily relationship-based just as your capital is now. So you know, once somebody's familiar with you and they know your track record and they understand that you know, it's going to work out, hopefully the way that you're saying that it's going to work out, each deal subsequent gets easier. But it's, it's much the same way that it sounds like you're presenting to your investors right now with a packet, probably your pro forma, along with a write-up on the project and you know, any additional underwriting information they want to see, probably some comparables to back up the assumptions that you're making. And then a lot of it's just dialogue from there. You purchased a permanent deal recently. I think you, you mentioned to me at some point, uh, the seller decided that they weren't going to be a seller anymore. They got cold feet, whatever. And you had a lot riding on the deal. And so you had to uh, sort of hire attorneys and get into all that. So what's that process like? What's that called? Yeah. So I think super timely. It's actually really interesting that we bring this up today because we're um, just getting started in our, our YouTube ventures. If you haven't checked out the, the YouTube channel yet, Bring It Real Estate, I think it's called. But uh, shout out to Elizabeth Sampson from my team who has been producing that and and doing a great job with it. But we actually covered today in an episode that's being released, uh, real estate litigation. We didn't actually cover this specific project. So I'm glad that you asked about it. So yeah, we were actually doing a a 1031 exchange and buying a permitted project um, in that exchange. So it was vitally important that we closed on the deal. We had the property under contract under PNS um, going through the motions, and we went to check to since it was a permitted deal to check and make sure that the permit wasn't appealed by one of the abutters. Uh, fast forward, we did find that uh, one of the neighbors did file a lawsuit against the developer who we were buying it from. We put him on notice that one of our contingencies in the offer was that he not be appealed, so he had to undertake. That process in working with the butter to get through that appeal. Fast forward, he was successful. Everything worked out. Now we're able to move forward with the deal. Great, everybody's happy. And about two days after everything was going well, he said, Oh, we're actually not going to close on the deal. This whole thing with the butter is actually uh, a title issue. That, well, that's not exactly what that is. So, we we were very committed at this point. We had actually waited through that whole process and we were coming up to the end of our window for the exchange and we had to perform. And uh, we talked to our attorneys, went through the motions there and did uh, file suit for specific performance and breach of contract. Pretty quickly, we were able to come to an agreement that 
yes, they are in the wrong. We are due to close on this property. And we did execute and, and close in a timely manner. But yeah, sometimes that stuff does happen, especially when people try to squirrel out of deals, especially when you know, you're doing everything in your power to uphold your end of the bargain. And just because the market might have risen during that period and they thought that they could get more money elsewhere, we still had cost in waiting all of that time. So, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't like we weren't, you know, no. for the ride with them or mm-hmm. yeah. So it's tough. I think that litigation, as ugly as it is and as ugly as it can be, sometimes does become a necessary byproduct of business. But yeah, it, it can be uncomfortable, scary from time to time. It can be beneficial as a tool to reignite conversation and and keep people honest at the end of the day. I think it's almost going to be about that time, maybe for a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. <laughs> so Adam, we'll throw out a concept, a term, a trend, and uh, you tell us in your estimation as to whether you think it is overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated. And uh, maybe a quick bit on, on why, but uh, I'll kick this thing off. And I will give you Union College. <laughs> Appropriately rated. I really very much enjoyed that school. Great liberal mm-hmm. arts school, small atmosphere, great culture. Good hockey team. They're pretty good at hockey too. I, I went to Union for one year, but uh, I wasn't smart enough to stay. No, I'm just kidding. Dan. How about Union Labor? Oh, we're staying in the union theme. Oh, wow. I think at times appropriately, but also at times underrated. Our unions uh, you know, do produce some great skilled individuals and they can be very timely and work very hard. I think that a lot of times they get a bad rap because of the additional cost. A lot of the unions that we've worked with do have recapture programs or market recapture where they can kind of buy down the cost of union labor to bring it more in line with open market or open shop and uh, compete for business that they wouldn't otherwise uh, be able to compete for. But uh, have you, you yeah, guys have really gotten market recovery dollars like that? Yes. Nice. For carpentry or what are you? Uh, electrical. That's interesting. It's a good answer. All right, Ray, what do you got? I hope this doesn't hit the wrong way. Purchasing approved plans. <laughs> I think the sound of it and the appeal of it entices a lot of people. And I think that it can be overrated. It's great because you've shortcutted a lot of heartache and a lot of the difficult part of the process. But it can also be a headache you know, trying to assemble plans and kind of get going on the right path once you do actually make that purchase. And you're inheriting somebody else's headaches that, you know, or pitfalls that you might not have known were there. You know, so there's certain design things that you know, we found in that project that we probably would have done differently. And, you know, we didn't have the opportunity to do that. You're typically paying a little bit of a premium for the entitled plans as well versus doing it yourself. Yep. Yep. You're definitely paying a little bit of a premium. But as you guys probably feel, you know, it's a difficult process and Mm -hmm. there was a value to that. Yeah. So does your opinion change if it's actually fully permitted, like you've gone through that process and now you have the permit in hand and just a transfer ownership, does that change the rating? Not so much. I, I wouldn't change my rating. I think there's still things that I would much rather go through the process and design the building myself because it, then I know that it's designed in a way that 
you know, I'm comfortable with rather than still inheriting something else. Yeah, I'll I echo that. that. Yeah. I don't like grabbing someone's permanent plans. I just I like to be, you know, there at inception. And I just like understand all the whole building and the whole deal so much better than someone just handing me someone else's, you know, two years of work. And I always think there's something wrong with the deal, but <laughs> not always. And you're always um, looking at the plans. I always feel like I'm looking at the plans. I'm like, I got to redo all the floor plans anyway. Yeah. So it's like, why wouldn't I just do it myself from the beginning? And then there's certain architects names I'll see. And it's just like, you knew you were going to flip these plans and therefore you hired a very inexpensive design firm. And uh, it's transparent, <laughs> but... Anyway, I think that brings us through overrated, underrated. No, no, one, we got to go for another, another round. round. One, one more round. round. One, one more round. 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 All right, you, okay. I got nothing. You go. All right, I'll go. In-house property management. Ooh. In-house property management. Can we further define that? Do you mean like my in-house property management? Just, just, been, in, in, just in general, like if having property management in-house. Yeah, so that is something that we do. We, we manage all of our own property and then we do some third-party management as well just because we have obviously all the mechanisms and everything in place to do so. I think that it's underrated in a lot of ways. And I hesitate there because it can be a pain in the butt sometimes. Mm. (laughs) So that was uh, the reason for the hesitancy. But I think that it is a little bit underrated. Doing that work, I think, you know, makes me a little bit more in tune with the properties that I own and it makes sure that, you know, I understand what's going on with the market a lot more, what's going on with my tenants. We do have staff that handles a lot of that and, you know, works very hard at that part of our company. But I think that there's something to be said again about that control or that having the oversight into all components of the business. All right. How about cryptocurrencies? That's I'll a tough bring it up because I know nothing about cryptocurrency. <laughs> All I know is that people, I think, make a lot of money at it, or maybe they don't. I <laughs> really don't know. I don't think people, they know. People are currently paying money for a, a fake coin of a dog that has no value, no yeah. intrinsic value. And, and didn't I hear part? that there's an unlimited quantity of it? So how does something have a value if it's unlimited? Yeah, certainly. Joke's on all of us because everyone who bought Dogecoin is <laughs> not managing their own properties. They're on the beach. But uh, yeah, I yeah, feel I, like Dan I and I were talking about it. Like at some point, the concept of NFTs, which are tied to the blockchain and all this stuff, may become a part of the home buying process or the, the title clearing yeah. process. We don't know, but the actual it will. currencies themselves, that, that was just for fun. <laughs> No, the blockchain and title would be a very natural extension of that technology. You know, you talk about clean title, that would certainly uh, give people confidence. But another topic for another episode for another day. In the meantime, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. This conversation has been great. If people want to get a hold of you, how can yeah. you do that? Always send me an email, adam at burnsrealtyboston.com. Hop on our website, uh, burnsrealtyboston.com. There's a contact us link there. Anything you like, I'm pretty easy to find. And and subscribe to Adam's YouTube channel. Yeah. channel. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Channel. Was it bring bring it bring it real estate? I think is the name of it. Boom. All right. Well, awesome. thank you everyone for uh, listening, rating, and reviewing. Appreciate it. Catch you on, Catch the, next you on the next one. Yep. Take care. Cheers. Appreciate it.